Hello, and welcome to the Space Cave. A big warg to all of you Spaceburgers out there, and especially those of you who support the show on Patreon. The show is made possible by contributions from listeners just like you if you want access to bonus episodes, behind-the-scenes stuff, and to just, in general, help out the show with, uh, you know, music costs, beer costs, general upkeep, tech, things like that. Patreon.com. Uh, and then I think it's Space Cave or it's David Huntsberger. Either way, you can help out, and uh, it makes a big difference. So thanks to those of you who do support the show. And um, if you're looking to get, add some stand-up to your life and you want to uh, watch some stand-up, uh, I have an animated special on Amazon streaming for free. If you have Amazon Prime, you can watch it for free. And it's called One-Headed Beast. You can find that there. Obviously, mixed feelings about the general behemoth that is Amazon, but that's where people are, and you want to have your things where people are going to be. So, for the time being, and I'm appreciative, I'm thankful to have it there, and that feels weird, but that's just the world we live in. And if you want to do something nice in the world, uh, Dylan Gonzalez from Nashville or at least I know him from Nashville, and his wife, Jessica, uh, have recently undergone some difficulties. And um, if you've ever been in a situation where, you know, you've had some health issues and could just use a little help, uh, they are in that position. So I'll put a link on the link to this episode on spacecave.com. And they have a GoFundMe page up. It's Dylan Gonzalez. He's uh, been helpful in this show, introducing a number of guests and suggesting music. And it's just a generally, genuinely nice person. Uh, one time he and his wife, the, when I met them, um, I was parked across the street, Emily Rose and I, and uh, like getting ready to go into the venue. We were pretty early. I'm like, I don't know if we should head in yet. We saw two people walk up. We're like, oh, they, they look like they could be Huntsberger people. And then they saw the front door and continued walking. We were like, damn it. But it turns out the front door is not the entrance. You have to actually walk around. So there's kind of a sign on the front that says, go around, use the side. So they were there. They were there very early and they sat right in front. And then uh, the crowd that night was not particularly great, kind of chatty and annoying. And they were so smiley and supportive and it made the show go way better. So I hope you'll help Dylan if for no other reason they... They did something so difficult, which is to sit in the front row where, you know, it's hard not to have eye contact made. It can feel a little awkward at times. And they were just beaming with good energy and positivity. And it made, for me, that show go much, much better. And I felt I would have just kind of not lost it, but lost track of the show and just kind of riffed and made fun of the the drunken people. But I saw that they were there and excited. So I, I stayed uh, on track a little bit with doing some some of the jokes and at least trying to get across <laughs> as much of the material as possible. So anyway, uh, they matter to me, and I hope you'll help them. 
Dylan Gonzalez and his wife Jessica. If you'd like to be like them and come see some live stand up, not be like them and suffer uh, through some rough times, but be like them and see a live comedy show, I'll be in Winnipeg at Rumors uh, January 14th through 18th, 2020. Uh, I have never been there before. Looking forward to I've heard great things about the club. Looking forward to seeing it. If you live in that general area, Come on up and say hello. Okay, let's get in to some hardcore chatting. This gentleman I met at a nerd night, kind of science gathering here in town, put together by our friend Cara Santa Maria, who I believe Daniel, I hope I'm saying that correctly, introduced us. So it does work. If you're a space burger out there thinking like, you know, I like this person and I like this person. I wonder if I should introduce them. Try it out. Kara and I have become pretty good friends and uh, Casey and I as well. He was there at the nerd night. We started chatting before I knew it. We were getting full tilt into Mars and the logistics of going. Come to find out, he uh, has a blog and he's heavily invested in the the thought process behind that. And he, as you'll hear, so interesting, so fascinating, a very engaged brain. And it goes without saying, he is uh, here on his own. His thoughts and opinions expressed are his own. I say that only because he works at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, one of my favorite places. I finally got to go visit it. I like it just... In principle, I like the story behind it. A bunch of scientists from Caltech blowing stuff up, and they were like, hey, we should give you a designated place to do that more. And now they are instrumental, as you know, in designing all kinds of things. Rockets, rovers, landers, uh, anything involving space. JPL is heavily intertwined, and we got to go do a tour. It was phenomenal. Uh, I'll maybe put some pictures of that up on the Patreon page. It's behind-the-scenes stuff. I don't know if I... I think I'm allowed to. It was a tour, but I'll double-check with him. Anyway, if you get a chance to ever go visit it and check it out, I highly recommend it. It's fascinating. You get to see the stuff being built that is going to be on the surface of Mars. Not like a replica, not some sort of model, the actual thing. It's incredible. And anyway, he's just a thoroughly fascinating person. I hope you enjoy it. Here's part one with Casey Handburn. And this is our our third, I want to say, encounter interaction yeah, Does, do you do you do these live, or do we just kind of crap on for three hours and you cut out the best bits? Or <laughs> I never how, edit. How coherent I'm, do I have to be? You can be as coherent as you want. If you think of something afterward, you're like, nah, I wish I hadn't said that. I'll chop it out of there. Otherwise, yeah, yeah. I do no editing. I talk to people sometimes, like, oh, I'm busy editing my podcast. I'm like, we already had the conversation. I don't know that I need to, like, listen to it again and make it sound real smooth. Maybe I should do that, but I think there's something... Um, I don't want to say endearing, but more compelling, but like um, earnest, I guess, about like a real conversation where it doesn't sound yes. too slick or it doesn't sound, there's no music beds for interludes or anything like that. If you can justify it, it saves a lot of time. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think the, the time that goes into just doing them is about the max amount of time I'm willing to put in. I mean, and then like all of the maintenance behind the scenes as well with file saving and exporting and things like that. But otherwise, if I had to sit there and listen and edit them all out, I I think I would go insane. All the sound effects and all that stuff. (laughs) Fortunately, there's a a budding cottage industry of of people who are able to do that sort of thing now. Oh, just I'll bet with a cool XML file program that recognizes, maybe it could just recognize, even if you just looked at like a WAV file and then, oh yeah, the number one... Is that maxing you out? Are you hearing it well enough? Yeah, it's just a little bit loud. Oh, oh yeah. a little loud. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's okay. good. That's good. Um, yeah, our first, our first, well, first of all, 
you took us on a wonderful tour of JPL, which was fantastic. Yes. Exceeded my expectations, what I had in my mind, I think, of like what we were going to see. Well, I practiced by giving a tour to all my relatives, so <laughs> I was pretty, pretty slick by that point. Um, I guess, I don't know if you do an introduction as part of this podcast or something, but... Um, I will, yeah, I will, I will, and then I'll also say in the intro that you are here on your own volition, that you're... Yeah, I just have to make sure that's, um, that's, that's out there and obvious, because, you know, we're very lucky that, um, that NASA lets its employees share their enthusiasm for space with people and, and participate in social media and podcasts and all that, and part of, um, safeguarding that, that privilege is, you know, being studiously careful about making sure that that we're not inadvertently quoted as speaking for nasa or representing nasa's point yeah. of view, official point of view which Definitely. is carefully curated by um you know a very large team of extremely competent professionals <laughs> take it seriously as they should for a 25 billion dollar year agency absolutely and one thing that might set your mind at ease about that is that this uh, particular podcast has never in any way been used as a quote factory for any particular publication or outlet of any sort so i don't i don't <laughs> <laughs> i too once thought my blog was safe from ever being read by anyone even my mum pretended to have read it but uh the starship post i think was read more than every other post combined times 100 wow which is i don't know kind of odd because <laughs> <laughs> it's caseyhammer.wordpress which you can make a wordpress site be just your so URL, it's blog.caseyhammer.com is the oh that's not what, how i got to it yeah yeah well yeah i should Oh, I usually just post a direct link in, in Twitter or whatever, but um, I have my own website, caseyhandman.com, and I have a, a blog subdomain which just redirects to the WordPress. I mean, Oh, gotcha. Okay. So, you know, DNS is, is a fiction anyway, so <laughs> what difference does it make? Yeah. But it just seems like a... Uh, I talk about this on this show all the time, the mom-and-pop aspect of standalone websites mm. where people... Everything gets kind of aggregated into Twitter or three yeah. or four other sites that people read it and things like that. So is, if you're out there in the old West, like people are shopping for a specific item and they knock, you hear that little bell as they come through your door. Yeah. Yeah. No, I just, I, I listened to a fabulous podcast uh, last week on Sean, Sean Carroll's podcast. He had Cory Doctorow on and, um, and Cory Doctorow said, you know, all of the internet now is five websites and four of them are screenshots of the other one. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's right. Okay. It makes sense why I'm producing my own content and self-publishing it. And given that, you know, I'm not a giant website, I should probably lean into the, the slightly uh, homespun aspect of it and not worry too much that it looks like it was done on a five-year-old template, because it was. Yeah, I, I used to put a lot of effort into learning CSS and all these things and trying to keep up with it. And then I got into the... WordPress was good and bad because it's open source. So you I just moved to... across to WordPress from Blogspot. Oh, okay. Um, which is where I, where I was I was on LiveJournal originally. Um, but... Uh, Blogspot, unfortunately, just became unmaintainable. Um, yeah, it was weird because it's 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 run and operated by Google, and Google's usually pretty slick as far as their customer facing products go. It's just mm -hmm. you know what you see is what you get, and you kind of get what you expect. And if something goes wrong, don't expect to ever get support. <laughs> yeah. But but you know, I just like I'd, I'd write some blog or I'd go back and modify an old blog, and suddenly all the text wouldn't flow properly, and I'm like. Come on, like yeah. Steve Jobs solved this problem in 1984. Like this is a very, very, very old piece of technology. Anyway, so I, I at, a, at the urgings of a couple of good friends, um, I was like, "Fine, I'll do the import export thing," and I did, and it was relatively relatively painless. So. They do a good job of that. All of them, I think Squarespace can integrate from WordPress and vice versa. And so they all have to be able to do it, otherwise they wouldn't. You know, their customer acquisition costs would be too high. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, d- I think I was holding out. One, I didn't know enough. Two, I was just absolutely convinced that any place that was trying to lure you in was doing it under the guise of like, eventually we'll get you trapped. So yeah, you can you can easily come in. It's like Hotel California, but you can't you leave. You can't ever leave. Yeah, I I thought if I could handle my own HTML, but once you're trying to scale and move and archive and everything that goes into like a site that's not mm. just frames or just a page here and a page here that you're actually like scrolling up and down and moving throughout it, WordPress makes that so much easier. It does, and and I mean, I, I also am known to program recreationally from time to time and. Um, but part of the problem I face, especially now I have a young child and a career and, and many other responsibilities is that I don't just don't have that much time to do my own thing anymore. And so I have to really ask myself, given that I only get, you know, five hours or 10 hours a week to work on my own hobbies and my own projects, do I want to spend that time reinventing the wheel to display text on someone's screen? Or do I want to focus on the content itself and, and let someone else optimize the crap out of making it look nice? <laughs> Um, and yeah, there's a happy medium to be found there. And I, I think I'm, I'm always getting closer to that optimum. <laughs> <laughs> well, your, your position at JPL, which yes. we won't talk about too much, but oh, is in like about, yeah. the programming world, right? So yeah, I mean, software is eating the world and the same goes at NASA. Um, there's, there's, JPL is an interesting, very interesting place with a long and storied history as we discussed on the tour, but <laughs> it's about 500 different groups there that each have their own technical subspecialty and some of them are in hardware and some of them are in software. So there's many, many different software groups and all the software groups do different things depending on what kind of problem they're trying to solve. So if people doing like extremely low level um, hardware, you know, FPGA design for missions and we have people doing, you know, uh, support software, people doing um, software, in, internal software products for you know, running the JPL network, all that kind of stuff. And those are all in separate groups. So, mm. you know, when you say I work on software at JPL, that, that narrows it down from 7,000 people to about probably 3,000, I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> something like that. Um, and, but I, I'm very fortunate in that um, I've had the freedom and flexibility to kind of work on a lot of different aspects, a lot of different problems at JPL. And, and so I get I don't just write one kind of software every day. I get yeah. to write lots of different kinds of software and, and kind of work out where the... I'm still kind of working on it, but where the best intersection of my interests and, and abilities and um, and kind of the time derivative of those two quantities uh, lie. Your interests and ability to retain them and be not just like have a cursory knowledge, but a really in-depth is is vast. I mean, from space to, you would think everything at JPL. Like, I'm oh, a bit okay, of a geek. <laughs> I do read a lot. Um, it turns out though that... Uh, the biggest advantage there is, is having um, background in physics. If you if you have a background in physics, you can bullshit competently on any subject uh, <laughs> with, a, with a moment's notice. So that, that does it does actually help. Like physics physics helps you say things that sound profound, and sometimes they are, but most, sometimes you know. But I mean, at the <clears throat> at the dinner we were at, where we met, when you were talking about physics things, we were with two phds in physics yeah 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 we were with uh, katie mack and a couple other people there um and <laughs> I, I i had to remind myself to like you know stay in my wheelhouse because you know, people like katie forget more about physics on a daily basis than i've ever known so i had to, I had to be <laughs> careful to defer like, to them on, on aspects of, of a couple of times she was deferring expertise. yeah no I, I i know what you're like you, it didn't feel like that though that you were kind of treading and like oh, forgive me if i'm wrong here it was almost like she had turned to you like what do you think on this well, I think in that, I don't know, that was a very long conversation, but um, I think there were sections where, where you know, I, I do have genuine expertise in certain sub-sub-sub-specialties of physics, you know, the areas I studied for my PhD. And, and, um, and there's very, very few people on Earth out there who 
know more about those particular topics than I do because they're so off in the wings that no one else has bothered to go there. Um, and so, you know, if the conversation happens to go in that direction, then I can probably be authoritative, but I don't know. Um, I don't study them anymore. So, so you got, we've got your PhD in physics from in Australia or no, here? No, Caltech. Yeah. At Caltech. Okay. Yeah, 2015. That's such a pipeline, the Caltech to JPL. I feel like a, f- a number oh, of people yeah. I've spoken with, that's the route. Well... So Caltech is a is a very interesting place because it's such a small university by global standards, but it has such an impact, high impact as well. It's it's by far the highest ranked private university as far as I can recall on earth. It's also the smallest, highest ranked university. Um, you know, a couple of years in a row, it was the Times number one in the world. It's always in the top ten, something like that. Um, it it it's got certain strengths. It doesn't do everything. You know, um, it mostly focuses on technical subjects. Um, and, and historically, it's had a bit of a kind of connection to the um, military technology world, um, as well as numerous other worlds. But I mean, there's like 40-something Nobel Prizes out of there now. So they've done all right for themselves. <laughs> um, the, the fascinating thing about Caltech is it wasn't even all that prominent until, um, I guess, like the the observers, astronomers. I mean, a couple of different things came together, but the astronomers came to Pasadena to build the observatory up in Mount Wilson. And, and you know, one thing led to another, and, and basically by the... By the early post-Second World War era, it was rapidly becoming one of the top places uh, on Earth to do stuff, which is just kind of cool. Yeah. Um, but that said, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, a lot of a lot of kind of specialty careers have this situation where um, the number of people who, who start the start the path is much much greater than the number of people who can finish it. And you know, that for every uh, newly uh, say a newly created position, which is say a tenured professorship in in physics or many other areas of academia, and for every one of those that's created per year, there might be a hundred um, successful PhDs in that subject, same subject per year, and and kind of there has to be a way of resolving this pyramid scheme. And, and the the net outcome in a place like Caltech actually is a lot of these people, especially people who've got qualifications in physics and, and basic competence when it comes to scientific programming, end up being eaten up by Section three thirty five at uh, or, or the Section thirty three at um, at JPL, which is a section that specialises in tracking applications and and radar and radio and mm-hmm. deep space network and well, I mean they all got kind of mixed up over the years, but um, you know like uh, I don't know, five or six people who I worked with in my PhD on gravitational wave related physics now work on GPS related software at JPL. It felt like, you know, this kind of secret tunnel must have been dug <laughs> um, between the departments because so many of them showed up there, including me, uh, after a couple of years, maybe in postdoc wilderness, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I just think of uh, <clears throat> getting your PhD in physics as you're in a lab somewhere mm. or with a chalkboard and trying to solve physics that way with this kind of, kind of Einstein hair pulling out but it's at a keyboard working on yeah that's an interesting interesting question I, I just realized the other day that even when i was in grad school i still knew almost nothing about academia and even now i know almost nothing about academia i didn't spend very much time in it all, all things considered um but i think i had several strong misconceptions and they were due to a variety of factors one is that you know a lot of what i learned about academia i learned from the big bang theory or i learned from um the uh, richard Feynman biography by james gleek which is you know a very entertaining book but you know what what stuff it has about academia that happens to be accurate is extremely out of date um and so i just i had no idea really and even now i really have no idea how the how the sausage actually gets made in academia and and as a result you know I, don't, I think my situation there is probably more egregious than most but it's hardly unique um a lot of people come in to do their phds especially at a top university like caltech and after spending four or five years or eight or nine years you know in the in the lab or in the office you know crunching away on some enormous problem 
they gradually understand that that's not actually what they want to spend the rest of their life doing. And that's a good thing. I mean, you know, like if you, if you learn a hundred times more about academia over the course of your PhD, it may be that your conclusion is this is not what I want to spend the rest of my life doing. That's a good thing. You, you have opportunities to go and do other things. You're not you know, forced to deal with the consequences of a decision you made on a whim when you were 21, um, <laughs> which, is, which is fine, which is great. It was a, it was a, for me, academia, like doing the PhD was a means into an end. It was a great way to come to the United States and get to meet some of the smartest, most interesting people I've ever met and learn interesting things and, and um, learn interesting skills and kind of get myself all worked out in that way um did you and, have a, yeah. a not a design but an, or an end result but a, a vague idea of since you knew nothing about academia like i want to do this i didn't know i knew nothing about academia i thought i knew about academia that's oh, the okay. problem um yeah and i mean people who've known me for a long long time will recognize this but but um and I, i'm sure that i'm currently writing things in my blog that uh, me 10 years hence will look back and say well you thought you knew everything but you know nothing <laughs> <laughs> and even even now you know even less you know uh that's just kind of the thing but one of the nice things about academia and and that lifestyle is that when you're very young and and reasonably healthy and you have fewer responsibilities you can um you can afford in some case i mean it's not not everyone is lucky enough to do this but but in my case i was able to to live um on, on extremely little money and, and have a great degree of freedom in terms of how I use my time. And, um, and that was, it was really kind of a valuable thing because I think most people, you know, if they're forced to earn enough to live, uh, have to work on problems that are, they know they can solve. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in academia, you, you can, you know, ratchet up the difficulty level to arbitrary extent. And, um, and so you can easily ratchet up the difficulty level to the point where you've got a problem that you'll never be able to solve no matter how long you live. Uh, maybe that's a little bit counterproductive because then, um, you don't actually get anything done. You know, the the aim of the game is to keep keep the engine as close to the red line as possible, but not actually to burn out. Yeah. Um, so, but you know, one of the nice things about stepping back from that is is realizing that you know there are there are problems out there that take five or ten years to solve, and they're worthy problems. But you can also solve other problems that you can knock over in a week or two or a year, or you know, like writing a book, for example. I've I've written I think three or four books now, and none of them are particularly long. Um, but but you know, most of them. Well, one of them I wrote in like 10 days. So Whoa. Yeah. A 10-day book. <laughs> that was my longest book so far. It was about 55,000 words. And um, I wrote almost all of it over Christmas New Year 2017 when my uh, wife had just become pregnant and was extremely sleepy. So um, <laughs> basically my job was to provide her with snacks and water and then stay quiet. And, um, <laughs> and I, I, I realized that I'd learned quite a bit about academia and a lot of my friends, um, especially older friends who had kids who were starting to go into academia or into grad school or whatever, would say, oh, you know, I'm worried that my child is you know going to Caltech or whatever and they they don't seem to you know know everything they could possibly know and I'm worried about them and as a parent it makes sense to me um, a lot of the point of growing up is to make your own mistakes but um, but as a parent you want to try and prevent your children from suffering unnecessary pain um, and they look at me and they say well there's a guy who's made plenty of mistakes maybe <laughs> maybe he can he can share some of his hard-won learnings to uh, with, with, with my children or with my friends or whatever and and so I'd end up like meeting these people for coffee you know and going for a walk around or, or whatever and and you could easily talk for five or six hours and and still realize that you've forgotten crucial things and so again with the encouragement of some some very kind of patient friends I, I sat down and and tried to put everything I'd learned on paper um, which started out as you know just like 25 chapters on a note in my phone mm-hmm. and then over the course of about a week and a half became you know 55,000 words of of uh, you know incandescently angry prose um, <laughs> which I toned down just a little bit over time um, <clears throat> I mean for those of your listeners who are not um, in academia it may surprise you to learn that uh, the process by which people are, are 
you know, basically perform science, the, the process of discovering things about a natural world, which almost invariably result in uh, disproportionately large um, benefits to all of us and, um, and you know, huge growth, growth in wealth, you know, 10, 20, 30 years down the track and so on. The people who are actually performing this work are by and large um, people who are legally classed as students so they don't have any labor protections are paid less than $30,000 a year, have very, very limited access to benefits um, you know, such as paternal, you know, uh, parental leave and, and, and uh, medical, medical benefits uh, and are often subjected to really quite shockingly abusive working conditions. Um, you know, and all that said, it's still you know it's still an interesting way to spend your twenties. But um, so but, that was know. the that's where the anger came from. Is it? It's not that dissimilar to athletes that make the university a ton of money. I mean, whatever academia would make with the prestige, and they're different. Obviously, Caltech doesn't have a giant football team, but not say like in Alabama, <laughs> they used to have a football team. Yeah, actually, they they won the <laughs> national like championship in 1944 or something. Cause, oh wow! Because the Caltech students were essentially studying how to build bombs so they were allowed to stay in school whereas everyone else kind of got sent off to fight yeah um at least that's that's my <laughs> zeroth level understanding of the, of the situation uh caltech yeah used to have used to have um uh, athletics uh well it still has athletics but used to have field field mm-hmm. sports teams but the the similarity i guess with well i'm on tv and i'm making this university a bunch of money right mm. right but you're well that's a misconception do- as well so the um you know, like like NASA, really, um, a lot of the research that gets conducted by universities uh, with public funding in in um, in the United States and all around the world is not monetized by the people who perform the research, by the, the students, nor their professors, nor the university itself. Um, there is most universities have like a patent office where they'll occasionally file a patent for something cool they've discovered, and then you know make a pretty lackluster attempt to license it to someone who wants to do something with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know um, the the efficiency of the free market does not really seem to penetrate those those organizations so um so what tends to happen is that is that you know the stuff that's discovered has a much longer pipeline and it takes quite a while to make it out into the world um as as you know it tends to do anyway i mean like the 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 accumulations of knowledge and do not happen overnight um so you know caltech has actually done extremely well um, on the back of just a handful of patents that it has developed over the years, I guess is to be expected. Yeah, some sort of power law distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the first the first gold mine that they hit, I, uh, they struck as far as I know, was Beckman's inventor of invention of the pH meter, uh, which made the university so fabulously wealthy. Um, this is in the 1930s that there's not one, not two, not three, but four different buildings on campus named after him. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit confusing. <laughs> I mean, that, that name's obviously a distinguishable on a, on a chart, but his name is in four different buildings' names. Yeah, uh, on on campus, and there's not that many buildings at Caltech. It's, you know, Fifty buildings, or something, mm. so it's a pretty small university. So they, w- I mean, when he's a student and he's not making much money, and he discovers something like this at the time, not great. But if oh, I think Beck. Was, was faculty at the time. Oh, was okay. Yeah, okay. Oh, or you know, something like that. Do you think if he was a student, they for all I know, one of his students discovered it. I mean, that, that, oh, yeah. that happened with Millikan. So Millikan's best known today. Uh, he was um, an early president of Caltech, but he's best known today for um, the oil drop experiment, which which measured the charge on the electron, um, and which we commemorate every year with the pumpkin drop experiment, where we threw pumpkins off the Millikan Library, uh, <laughs> frozen liquid nitrogen in an attempt to demonstrate um, tribal luminescence, uh, basically them generating a spark as they disintegrate on impact. <laughs> I believe it has actually been photographed. Um, the Millikan is best known for that. What's what's not as well known is that that work was actually done by one of his grad students, and and uh, and um, 
instead of merely stealing the credit for the the thing Millican, I think exchanged a um, the ability to live in a house to the grad student who had a young family and nowhere to live. Uh, so <laughs> I guess you know maybe pay students more. Yeah, let's pay students more. Uh, Millican, <laughs> Millican. I mean, uh, I shouldn't I shouldn't pass over without pointing this out. I only learned this recently. But Millican and some of his buddies in the Celtic board of directors back then, and a few other prominent people in Pasadena are also members of uh, white supremacist society. So oh yikes. yeah, yeah, uh, yikes, exactly. Uh, uh, I, let's let's just say I'm glad I don't live in the 1930s. Um, it's uh, <laughs> the seedy underbelly of academia and and a group that we consider. I think when we think of people being highly highly intelligent, yeah. a lot of times that they're devoid of those sort of. Oh no, they're, they're immune. They're immune from ever being wrong about anything else. Um, that's not the case. Um, and actually, uh, I mean, history is not taught as it once was perhaps in the United States and and I'm certainly not an expert on history I mostly studied ancient history in school but um you know, when we learn about the Second World War, we learned that oh, the Nazis were really mean for a while. The Germans were really mean for a while, became the Nazis, and and essentially were killing off Jewish people and and other ethnic minorities and disabled people and all the rest and um, LGBTQ people. Um, and and that's that's not a great thing. But what's often forgotten is that um, in the lead up to the Second World War and basically throughout history, there's also been like a substantial undercurrent of anti-Semitism throughout the world. You know, and and Richard Feynman, who's you know again another one of these luminary Caltech types with a complicated backstory, um, actually suffered the consequences of of anti-Semitic um, discrimination when he was uh, trying to get into undergraduate or grad school in the 1930s. Um, it's just that after the Second World War, you know, remembering the extent to which institutions in the United States had been you know, really quite well aligned with the Nazis, um, it became very unfashionable. I, mean, mm-hmm. um, I think Hugo Boss made the uniforms of the of the Nazis, and IBM supplied the computers they used to count up the Jews as they sent them off to the. Henry to Ford the used thing. to put like anti-Semitic propaganda in yeah. motor cars. Yeah, Roald Dahl was a wildly. Uh, anti-Semitic person and yet yeah. we see people still read you know James and the Giant Peach or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and like well this is different this well I, mean, I think the lo- if you die lo- died long enough ago we sort of remember the positive things about you like, yeah most people when they think of Genghis Khan they think oh a great military leader I think he was probably <laughs> not all that nice to be around um, so yeah I guess history is often kind to kind to people who who are remembered um Going back to the problem solving kind of like, yeah, and I think it has to do straight a little far from my expertise. (laughs) (laughs) It has to deal with, um, you talk about like big problems and deciding which problems to tackle. So like in math, there will be, when someone solves it, they'll go, they solved Flanagan's third or some weird abstract name. And like, what does that mean? Fermat's last theorem or something. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Some sort of theorem that you knew it was a a problem you couldn't solve. So then you put it out there and like put your name on it and people might spend years tinkering on it or doing it on the side to decide this is in physics, maybe like the unified theory, something like that. Or you could go, I'm, I don't have time for that. And then you talk about like your blog. It comes back to like micro problems. Do I want to figure out this font style? Or you know what? Screw it. I'm just putting it out there. I'm moving on with my day. How do you, is that something where, so you're at a place like GPL or Caltech where mm. efficiency is a big thing. Everyone I know that's very, not just associated with rockets, but science in general really understands how to like be efficient in well my day needs to start with this and this i wear this kind of clothes because it eliminates like the decision making process with mm. what i wear i'm moving efficiently through life is that something that you do um i, I go through periods of of getting extremely annoyed at myself if i 
take a suboptimal path between two places or something. But I, I generally such a perfect way to describe it. I took a suboptimal path. Yeah, or I take a wrong turn on the freeway or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, But I generally try and cut myself some slack these days. It's uh, uh, for those of you who have not um, experienced the joy of of young children. you know, I'd, I'd kind of observed this in third parties a lot when I was teaching at Caltech because you know, grad students in the United States do a lot of teaching. And I saw students, all the students at Caltech are brilliantly smart. Um, some of them, time management skills not really there. Uh, they haven't really needed them because they've just been too smart. Like, you don't need time management skills if you can get 100% in all the exams without trying. Caltech, you will find that, you know, you're no longer getting 100% in all the exams. It doesn't matter how smart you are. And 50% <laughs> of the new students at Caltech find they're below average, which is usually a bit uh, frightening for them. Where'd you come in on that? Because I went to college doing having done... Oh, I was, I was a grad student, so I was just inflicting the pain on the undergrads. Uh, no, but did you have to experience that at some point yourself? Oh, of course, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. What was that like to go... Um, and were you one of those students that didn't really need to study and could just ace a test? Oh, uh, I mean, at various ages in my life, yes. But, I mean, I failed my driver's license exam in Australia three times, so <laughs> um, it's, it's a it's a performative exam. But, um, you know, like, certainly I've encountered failure, and, and um, uh, it was kind of an interesting process. And I, I, I tried to help a lot of the students I knew kind of um, rationalize this process but, but essentially go you go from a phase where you get very angry at yourself for having gotten something wrong to a phase where you're like isn't it great that I'm in a situation where I am able to socialize with people who are able to teach me something mm-hmm. and that as a result of having got this wrong I now can think better than I did yesterday yeah you know and and you know it's it's sometimes difficult to maintain a excessively bright sunny cheerful disposition such as that um especially if you getting something wrong is standing between you and and achieving what you want to achieve that day right now right now but you know you've just got to kind of hack it um yeah and I saw I was just uh, to double back to this time management point uh, a lot of these students would would become addicted to World of Warcraft or something, and and so you could plot their grades over the course of the of the term, and I often did this, uh, you know, with their perceived level of sleep deprivation, and showed that essentially, like, not having enough sleep knocks twenty or thirty IQ points off. It's like it's like showing up to every exam completely drunk, and <laughs> it is. I mean, if you're sleepy enough, you you can't drive a car. You know, it's unsafe. So um, so you know, the students I always knew who managed to get through with the minimum pain were the ones who always made sure they slept enough, mm-hmm. or what enough was uh, yeah. on a, on a daily basis. Um, you know, and, and didn't try and make up for it with, with too much caffeine. And the same thing uh, kind of occurred when the when my uh, baby um, first arrived. I just. I felt so dumb. I couldn't remember anything. I was, you know, running into doors and walls and, and um, couldn't think clearly, couldn't solve problems, couldn't do it. It was just, uh, <laughs> it was the worst. Um. <laughs> that, whenever that happens to me, which I guess as I get older is more and more frequent, I just get terrified at old age for that, yeah. for that feeling. Yeah, just that like at some point there, there starts to be less you can do. Yes. As you're as, as, what, where you are now, you're like, I'll just sleep a little more. I'll just do this. Yeah, I'll, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll boost up my mind so that I'm back to being what I feel like is me. Yeah. At some point when it crests over, and hopefully it's far down the road. Yeah. But that's just such a terrifying thought that you're just. I think it's easier for for people who prefer to optimize intellectual pursuits than say high performance swimming or something. You know, like, mm-hmm. um, there's certain sports where where or gymnastics or something where we tend to peak extremely young. Uh, yeah. Like uh, you know, you'd hope that you had a second secondary hobby kind of <laughs> uh, tied you over there. Um, of course, you know, there are, there are top sprint cyclists or whatever that, that at the age of 60 are still much faster on a bike than anyone I'm related to will ever be. But um, Right, but they're not placing in like the Olympics they're with not, a bunch of yeah, 20-year-olds. They, they, they can't handle the EPO anymore. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, I don't know. Uh, one of the, 
one of the interesting things is it says as you get older I think and I'm, I'm 32 dear listener uh, listen to my wisdom on the subject um, <laughs> I think as you get older you, you, you become better at using your strengths in better ways you know you waste, waste less effort mm-hmm. um, you also learn much more things and, and provided you keep practicing learning and being wrong and making decisions and, and all those kind of things I think it's possible to retain um, intellectual youth far far later than than you would otherwise expect i think the primary risk and um you know you see this quite often in older professors and things is is getting in the habit of always being right and, mm-hmm. and being un- unable to learn unable to adjust um and it's really a quite a sad thing to see happen i th- this might be i think it's tangent to that or at least uh, relevant in that your hobbies your interests what you're fully immersed in seem to align um, extremely well with your just general nature. I think there are a lot of people who are going to work doing something where, uh, not a guilty pleasure, but something they do when they when they have their free time is say reading something that you would write or reading what you're reading about. It's like, oh, I love space. I love all that. Mm. Well, back to work painting houses, back to work selling yeah, yeah, insurance. Yeah. Yeah. So for you to be able to be in that world and also for it to kind of be your hobby, to be the thing you're so yeah. interested in. I, I feel very, very fortunate. And um, at various times in my life, I've had to do jobs for money um, uh, you know, that I did not love. Or let's say I... Um, absolutely did not love um <laughs> but you know i love i love not being completely poor um and and at various I mean, i've been broken my lifetime as well you know and when i was very young i thought it'd be a good idea to try and hitchhike across the world and was destitute for much of that time and <laughs> what age were you at this uh well the first time i got i got seriously broke uh, many continents from my home when i was 19 wow um where's uh, the impetus to do this come from because we're not drinking uh, now, and I, when I, when yeah. I, as an outsider, just knowing you barely, sometimes I feel like when people have this such a high like intellect, certain things. Why just did make I do such a dumb thing? Um. No, no, but, like just it just seems like oh, I've examined society. I've seen they make outrageously dumb decisions. It cuts down on your productive time, even if it's just one or two drinks. I've therefore eliminated that from my life. So I could oh, see yeah. the, the logic behind a move like that from someone with a really high IQ or well, like, oh, of course they will. I mean, it's a funny thing because because when if you've ever done a lot of backpacking travel and, and done, you know, gone to a little bit of effort to get off the beaten track, if you do meet another traveler, they, they represent a very wide spectrum. Mm-hmm. of humanity like i didn't go out into the middle of nowhere and then suddenly run across a bunch of physicists my own age from australia yeah. you know like that never happened I, I ran across the weirdest strangest most wonderful people mm-hmm. um and, and of course all the people out there you meet out there they understand what travel's really like you know what the dangers really are and their, their outlook and perspective on the whole thing is very different from your run-of-the-mill friends or, or family back home who think oh well you go there's barbarians you're gonna get in trouble <laughs> you know and yeah from time to time one does get into trouble and, and there are real risks associated with this as there are with anything mm-hmm. now at 19, I was a pretty intense person. I, I like to say I've become twice as chill every year since I was 17. So um, I'm, I can still be pretty intense at times, uh, even now when I'm approximately 8,000 times more chill than I was back then. Um, and, um, and you know, I was kind of uh, just finished up my first year of university and I wanted to go out and test myself. I thought I'm an adult now. I don't have any responsibilities. I have saved a couple of thousand dollars, uh, enough for a one-way affair off this um, barren island rock of Australia. And... Um, and I thought, you know, if I don't do it now, mm-hmm. I'm just a poser, you know, I'm a dilettante. <laughs> I'm not actually as cool as I think I am. I, have, I will have missed this chance to go out and do something. And in, in that respect, um, 
actually some of the stuff I studied in high school, like English literature, we had to study this kind of concept of the journey. And, uh, and so we had to go out and look for our own sources. And I found a, a blog website by uh, a man who subsequently become a close personal friend. Um, but at the time I'd never met. Mm-hmm. And, um, That's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's about, uh, he's in his, I guess about 50 now. Um, but you know, this was 15 years ago and he, uh, grew up in the Soviet union and, um, was a zoologist and mm-hmm. suffered anti-Semitic discrimination. Uh, and so he wasn't able to study zoology, he had to study you know, electrical engineering or something. Um, but he, in all his free time, would travel all across the old Soviet Union, which people might not remember on your, on your uh, listeners, your podcast may not remember. It was an enormous area. I guess what it spanned from uh, the border of Afghanistan all the way to, to you know, halfway through Germany. Um, and he traveled all around and, and document all these things and write papers and, and then and then, you know, the, the really cool thing was he was also a really good writer. So most of the people you meet out doing crazy adventures will tell you a crazy story, but they'll never write it down. And when they die or, or retire, you'll, they'll be gone forever. You'll never yeah. learn about it. Um, and so when you do actually find someone who's a combination of an adventurer and a good writer, you read these stories and you can't believe them because they're just like, this could not possibly happen in this universe. You know, like I read Harry Potter when I was a kid and I was like, this is pretty amazing, right? but it's all basically fiction. It's something that some, one person has dreamed up in their head. But you go into Uzbekistan and look at the great mosque in Samarkand and you're like, this is something that none of the writers who I grew up reading would have even imagined. Mm-hmm. Right? It was imagined by, by minds of people who lived in a different world a thousand years ago and they built it and it's here and we can look at it and be like, the universe is bigger than my brain. <laughs> and so I wanted to go out and look at it. And, um, and so I did. And um, I, I've done a couple of, couple of big trips. Um, but that, the first one was, I was by far the most naive. I had no idea what I was doing. And so I got into really hilarious scrapes and, um, and saw all kinds of crazy things. That was, yeah. And, and by all accounts, um, returned a, a changed and much more tolerable human. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of achieved the thing you were trying to go get. Yeah, I was trying to obtain self-knowledge. And um, I know that a lot of young people do this in all kinds of different ways. Um, you know, a lot of people get into you know, very serious um, physical training. Bodybuilding is fashionable now. Mm-hmm. Um, people will drink alcohol or experiment with drugs. And, um, and you know, when I look back on all that travel I did, I probably spent $20,000 over the course of four years traveling through about 50 countries. And, and um and I, I came genuinely close to killing myself a couple of times, like not suicide, but like, oh, yeah. like accidents and things. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd go for a hike in some frozen forest in Siberia and get lost or have a fall. Or uh, I was skiing at one point in, in Bulgaria and I ended up on the wrong side of the mountain and, you know, fading light. <laughs> um, uh, what's another thing? I had a terrible car accident in, in um, the far east of Russia once. So Does that come from, I feel like in my stand-up to some degree, or maybe as a running theme on this show, I talk about you being this thing that you don't know how you got here or where you are, but oh, you're yeah, yeah. In the, and how sad would it be to not experiment with that and, and feel all the things and yeah. see all the things? And yeah, a brain, a brain floating in a, in a void. And at the time, I, I, I was very, I, I was kind of resisting alcohol and drugs and things because a lot of people I was casually acquainted with in Australia thought they were pretty cool. Um, because I felt like at the end of the day, I'd just be lying on a couch, like kind of spacing out and seeing things that were happening in my brain, but they weren't happening out there. Yeah. I wasn't actually like getting universe through my eyeballs, um, which is what I wanted to do. And at the time, I'd, I think I'd calculated that if you wanted to see the entire land surface of the land surface area of the earth in one lifetime, you'd have to visit every <laughs> square kilometer, like every second or something like that. Like, like the, the world was so big, you couldn't pl- plausibly see all of it in one lifetime. So that was like, better get started. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Those now, but now when I look back, I say, well, you know, when I grew up, everyone was like, oh, you know, don't, don't take drugs are pretty dangerous. And, you know, there are obviously risks associated with, with, with using drugs, especially if they're not legal, um, legally, you know, there, there are social risks. There's also like health risks and so on associated, especially addiction, all that kind of stuff. But when I look back, I'm like, well, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think I could have done all this travel if I had not had, you know, 
the money and the health and and the privileges and the passport and all the rest of it that allowed me to go out there. And at the end of the day, even though I didn't go out trying to kill myself, like I nearly did a couple of times. And, uh, you know, all in all, I might've been better off just knocking back a few cold ones and spacing out on the couch. Like in terms, in terms of like amount of self-knowledge obtained per risk per dollar. Um, (laughs) But they don't don't write books about the latter, the former wrong side of the mountain in Bulgaria. I'm yeah. turning the pages on that book. Like, oh, this is interesting. Yeah. Oh, and then and then then I basically like <laughs> essentially climbed back up the mountain and got out. And <laughs> went to Turkey that evening. Like, it was. Um, I nearly got rolled by some uh, by some street kids that night. Anyway, I didn't. Nothing. Nothing hurt that day after that. <laughs> <laughs> so that was it. Was fun. And you know, I, I know a couple of people who do mountain mountain mountaineering, like mountain climbing, um, with various levels of of seriousness. Like, you know, a few people have climbed Everest, and a few people have done serious trips in Antarctica, and a few people who just like go to local crag and climb around. And, and they seem to have a similar outlook, I think, which is that, you know, there's, there's something um, interesting, fundamentally interesting about intermediating between your own being, which is some kind of like biochemical robot, um, sentient biochemical robot and the rest of the universe through that medium, through mm-hmm. your hands and feet. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that I did it when I when I did it, because at, you know, at 19 or 20 or 21, you can you know, spend a week sleeping in a ditch and essentially dust yourself off and feel OK at 32. I think if I had the choice, I would probably stay in a hotel <laughs> with a door and possibly a bed. Um, so the wanderlust yeah. is kind of, or the not that it's a renegade thing, but the rebellious kind of. Well, the, the, the masochism like level is not yeah. dialed back a bit. And also, you know, I didn't have any money back then, but I could take three or four months off and didn't care. Mm-hmm. You know, like, can I take three or four months off now? Not easily. You know, I, I mean, I probably could do it one more time before I'm 40, but I have to like plan it a lot. You'll be in a, one of the big squares in Europe pushing, but maybe your kid will be holding your hand walking next to you and your wife and you'll see a 17 or 18 year old trying to make some money, trying to figure out some way to get a little cash. Yeah. Them, and you'll go, ah, yeah, I know that. Yeah, I'll slip my 50. Um, <laughs> or, or actually just probably like when I was traveling, like sometimes people would see me, especially while well, I was, I said I was ran out of money when I was in Italy and Italy is a fabulous place to travel, uh, especially if you don't have much money because they've got a train network everywhere and, and, um, and I'd wander around and, and like I, I looked rough like and, <laughs> and bathed and like I've got photos from that year I was looking at the other day and, and um, I was really skinny and so I'd be walking through some like antique partially fossilized Italian town up in the mountains of Perugia and uh, just kind of wandering back and forth waiting for the last bus back to wherever I was going to sleep that evening and um, or, or trying to find a place to sleep that evening sometimes you just kind of wander around trying to find a quiet <laughs> quiet stairwell or something and uh, you know what would happen is is, is um Italian grandmothers essentially who have a, a passing resemblance in shape to a, a block of mozzarella cheese would come bustling out of the door and their eyes would like shining and they'd uh, oh you know and I couldn't I don't understand Italian particularly well but they'd say something like oh my god you're like 12 years old and you're so skinny and like would you like some food and they just like thrust like an armful of fresh tomatoes or like a loaf of bread or something or like, wow. or like a bunch of grapes into my hands and be like eat this food eat this food and I'd just be like uh, you know grazie mille uh, and and, uh, and um, so that was that was pretty cool. Yeah, that's yeah. so great. So it's you know that you can. I mean, I've always found like nine nine hundred ninety nine times out of a thousand, like the kindness of strangers is just, um, especially in places where there's no like routine tourist industry is is, mm-hmm. is mind blowing. I mean, I've I spent weeks traveling through parts of Russia that don't even have hotels. Like like no one goes there. Most yeah. people are trying to leave there. Yeah. You go there and they're the f- you're the first foreigner. Like. 99% of the people in the town have ever met or ever will meet mm-hmm. you know and these people are like <laughs> it's basically like someone drives past you as you're walking into town where you're the guy you hitchhike with drop you off 
and um and they, you know they roll down the window and say hey do you need a lift you know there might be a bear out there so I'm like, I'm like yeah i'm just i'm just having, having a look around and then they drive back and they brought their friend who speaks a bit of english and they and they say oh you need do you need a place to stay you know and one of them's like oh you know we'll have a barbecue we're going to invite all our friends you know and <laughs> just because you're there we all, I mean, it's the most exciting thing that's happened in a year or two, you know, and, and you show up and, and, and all these people, and of course, you know, half of them are drunk and, and the other half, are, you know, like these places are very, very poor places and people mostly unemployed. Um, the climate there is like above freezing for like two months of the year um, and often gets down to like minus 100 kind of level, like minus 100 Fahrenheit. So it's, it's really brutally cold parts of the world, kind of like opposite Alaska. And... Um, uh, but you know these people are extremely kind like do you need some room like I think I've got like one piece of fruit left over from the summer you know like would you like it and I'm like <laughs> okay thanks and uh, and then you know some like this um, this young woman showed up and uh, at the party and 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 start asking questions and and um, she didn't really speak any English but by this point I spoke about 100 words of Russian and we kind of were able to get by and and you know, she gave me some questions and I put them in Google Translate or something and figured out the answers. And and, um, and then it turned out the, the following day, she was like the journalist, like a freelance journalist for like a local newsletter. It wasn't really oh, a newspaper, cool. but a newsletter. So I like made the front page of the newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was it's like kind of nuts, right? Um, yeah. You know, people would drive by in a car, which basically only had three wheels. And, and they'd be like, which way are you going? I'd be like, I'm going to Rosvilco. And they'd be like, oh, it's only 100 miles out of my way. Let me drive you. <laughs> and uh, Were you traveling with a cool. map? What, what made you just throw a dart at a, at a, at a location and be like, I'm going to go there, I guess. Well, so this, this person I mentioned, his blog I found, his name is Vladimir Dinyets, and um, he's probably achieved most of his um, notoriety since I've gotten to know him because um, about 10 years ago when he finished his PhD, a whole bunch of papers he wrote were kind of picked up by the popular mainstream press. Uh, he did his PhD on crocodile behavior, like crocodilian behavior, alligators and crocodiles, which there's like 30-something species. And, um, and he basically showed, uh, was able to show and publish, people knew bits and pieces of this, but he was able to, to prove like in in the scientific press for the first time that um, the crocodilians were really, really sophisticated in terms of what they did. Like, like um, complicated social structures, they did cooperative childcare, they did tool use, they did play, they did tree climbing, they did ambush hunting. Um, Whoa. All kinds of crazy stuff. All of which he basically like found out during his like 6,000 hours of laborious <laughs> field work in like the, the darkest parts of Africa and like Papua New Guinea and all the rest of it and, yeah. and he, like broke multiple bones and, and had like separating skin sores and all kinds of stuff. He was, I met him in the midst of this uh, PhD for the first time and, and, and he was just like, uh, he looked like a walking skeleton. He hadn't eaten in like four weeks and I was like, <laughs> <laughs> come, come stay at my place for a couple of days. I was at the time a absolutely broke uh, senior student at Sydney University. And he was in Australia because we have some crocodiles in Australia. And and, um, and uh, he was hoping to work with Steve Irwin, actually, who just died at that time. So it was mm. a bit sad. Um, but I, I managed to feed him up. I had like an infinite supply of rice and pasta. And I was just like, <laughs> keep eating, keep eating. <laughs> uh, I forget where I was going with that story. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Um, he... He wrote a whole series of, of books and blogs um, on on his website, you know, nineteen ninety five era bl- website, and um, which is still up. You can find it if you look closely enough um, about hitchhiking along this road in the far east of Russia. There's only one road um, that goes uh, goes east of Yakutsk, and uh, it's called the Kolomo Highway or the Kolomo Trasa or uh, the Road of Bones or the M fifty two, I think, um, depending on on who you ask. And it's about two thousand k's, fourteen hundred miles, um, twelve hundred miles. Um, kind of across three mountain ranges and past these places, which are the coldest places on, in the Northern Hemisphere and, and eventually makes it to a, a town uh, called Magadan, which is um, on the northern shore of the Sea of Okhotsk, which is this kind of this almost enclosed sea between northern Japan, um, uh, Kamchatka, which everyone who plays Risk will know about, and, uh, <laughs> and then the rest of Siberia. Um, 
so it was it's kind of way out in the middle of nowhere you know and, and a place there yeah anyway so so he, he was there and i was like well that seems like a fun place to go and yeah. spend the summer and said no one ever um and uh, so i thought i'll go and check that out i bet if i go there i'll be able to kind of meet some cool people and and see what's to see and you know it's an, like the whole area is about the size of europe the population is two million people mm-hmm. you know total and I thought there's gonna be some cool stuff there. You know, I might learn some stuff. I might might see some cool things, and you know, just kind of test myself. You know, see what's out there. Yeah, I like that to head off into like uncertainty where people. Yeah, and there was one there was one guidebook at the time in English, mm-hmm. and I realized following this guidebook that the people who wrote it had only gone so far along the road, and the rest they'd made up. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I got in touch with them later and and um and offered to send them some updates and and uh, and they said yeah we we ran out of money essentially and so we we at our last hotel we basically called all the other hotels along the road and asked them details about like <laughs> how big is your town you know. Um, how much does it cost to stay at the hotel stuff like that and basically put it in the book but uh, and i i subsequently updated the wiki travel article about that area with basically warning being like don't go here <laughs> you know if you go here you have to support yourself there's, there's no nothing but you know some people have actually you know some other like people have gotten in touch with me to say that they they went there and came back alive so it's a <laughs> it's <laughs> a cool place like a, a foremost expert on that area of the world in Just, english yes yeah cool. uh, so i met a couple of um travelers when i was out there but they were all part of the kind of russian um mm. language zone did you have not a ticking clock but kind of a, like you said like oh if i don't do this now i'm never going to do it kind of uh that was fear mostly mm-hmm. yeah so it was, it was mostly like a question of overcoming my um sorry my reticence to um to really take a risk and step out step outside and um i don't know if you've ever done something like this but typically when you when you you know you finished up a hard year of academic school or whatever like or university and you say goodbye to your friends and if you're lucky enough you got a girlfriend or boyfriend and you say goodbye to them and you get on a plane and you you take off and you land at some weird place in the middle of nowhere and you don't speak language you don't like the food and you're hungry and tired and jet lagged and you just feel like miserable like mm-hmm. just awful for like three or four or five days and um and then eventually like you get you get used to it and you just kind of you get you get used to like sleeping in a new place every night and just keeping on traveling and walking 20 30 miles a day and and all that kind of stuff <laughs> and um and and it kind of you get used to it and then you come home and have a good sleep but uh, <laughs> but uh the hardest part of that whole process by far is just like stepping outside of your house and closing the door behind you locking it hiding the key putting your backpack on and then like walking to the train station, getting on the train, going to the airport, getting on the plane and then flying. And like yeah. once, once, you, once you get that ball rolling, it's just a matter of keeping on doing, keeping on doing one day at a time, one day at a time until you get wherever you're going or give up and come home, um, <laughs> run out of money in the middle of Europe or whatever, you know, or, you know, have to come back to finish school or something. <laughs> well, so the hard part is, is like, it's just the first step. Like that's the the journey of a thousand steps starts with 30 of a thousand miles starts with a single step, right? Mm. Confucius thing. I don't know. I think that's it. A journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. Yeah. Um, well, I want to find out more about, I want to talk, I want to take a little quick break and then talk more about uh, how all this shaped. And then, cause you, you're exploring the I was planet. told we we're going to come here to talk about Mars. So yeah, I know. Yeah. I, cause I, I feel like this was you getting a handle on. I always equated, like when I started doing stand up a lot, I wanted to see yeah. a lot of the United States. I feel like everyone's zooming to go see the rest of the world. Like I haven't even seen this place. Yeah. So I wanted to get a sense of where do I live and then I think once you have just even a general feeling about that, the universe as a whole starts feeling like an extension of that. Like, oh, I want to know about that now. What's that out there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll break for we'll a moment. A Tackle that. Okay. So we got to know him a little bit in that episode. Uh, come back for part two. We get a little more into the science. 
a little bit more into Mars, more so just into the universe as a whole and, and his thoughts and knowledge and feelings. It's incredible uh, how much he's able to retain and effectively communicate. I could just sit there and, and chat with him all day. I really enjoyed it. So thanks again to Casey. Come back next week. Uh, reminder, if you are a Patreon member, uh, there were some year-end kind of goodies that went out. If you didn't get yours, this is mostly to the 5 and $10 tier people. Uh, check your Patreon mailbox. Hopefully it got forwarded to, forwarded to your uh, regular mailbox. And then also in your physical mailbox, for those of you in the $10 realm and up, there should have been something for you. It's usually just some sort of little scribbling or doodling i did but uh if you if you want something like that if that sounds appealing to you head on over to patreon.com okay here's some music oh the year-end music if you're a patreon member you get a um a link to a bunch of music so if that sounds appealing to you if you like the music on this show you can obviously find it uh there's a, a spotify playlist i think if you search space cave it's on there if you want to just stream it and um there's a link at the end of every episode description to purchase the music from the artists. I hope you'll support them directly, especially if you can do it through like Bandcamp or something that goes as much directly to them as possible. Check out their tour dates, go see them. And I'm not even sure if this band is still around. I apologize. I didn't do my homework. This was sent to me by Carmen Peters. He said, Hey, I think you'd like this. And this was based off of um, some stand up. He was at a show in Minneapolis. And he's like, Hey, just based on what you're talking about, I think you'd like this music. I said, Dude. I play music on my uh, podcast and I will play this one. Thanks for suggesting it. So if you have ideas for music, for topics, for guests, for beer, whatever, you can tweet space underscore cave or you can email directly pings at the space dot com. I'd love to hear from you. And especially if you have some level of uh, expertise in the world, come on over. We'll have a beer and chat about it. Until then, here's some music. Come back next week for part two with Casey, as I mentioned. And uh, this is a song called Ride the Nuclear by Orange's Band. Thanks again to Carmen for the suggestion. Thanks for stopping by the Space Cave.
Oh